before our reading this morning, let us remind our hearts of the promise the Lord has made in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Today's scripture reading is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Please take a moment to turn to the text in your Bibles to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the land called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, again, good morning. It's good to be together. And uh, if you're new, this is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible. We love uh, the Word of God here. And so we are making our way through uh, the book of Revelation. This is just week two. So again, you're new. Uh, awesome time uh, to jump in here. And before we jump in, you, you'll want to keep your Bible open. Um, or if you have those handy notebooks that we, we're uh, giving away, which I believe we'll have more downstairs uh, after this service, potentially if, if they weren't there before. All right. So let's, uh, let's wade into Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse nine, verses 9 through 20. And I, I, the more I've thought about it, I, and I didn't do this necessarily intentionally, Revelation is such a great book to start the new year in, to be honest, right? It, it, we, we stand here at the beginning of the year, and the majority of days are of the year of 2024 are not filled yet, right? And so some of you, you look at those unfilled days, right? Those unknown, the future of the unknown, and some of you look at it with hope, 
Some of you look at it with, with a plan, maybe those uh, resolutions or those goals or whatever you want to call them, you, you look ahead. Um, some of you, you look at those days and, and, and it makes you uh, anxious, you're like, what, what, what is this year hold? Maybe you look backwards, maybe it's 2023, or you look, you, you look in prior years and you go, man, um, the unknown, the fear of the unknown kind of grips me. And maybe some of you are there just in general. Um, but the book of Revelation so beautifully and so profoundly speaks both to our anxiousness and our hope. Whatever you find yourself, whichever camp there you find yourself in, um, the book of Revelation, the word of God, in his final book, in, in this book that we're studying together, speaks to that, speaks directly to that. But I do want to talk to those of you who find yourself maybe more in the uh, anxious camp. And uh, when you heard we were studying the book of Revelation, maybe you just became even more anxious, right? You're like, what? We're doing what? Um, where do you turn when anxiousness creeps up in your life? What's the, what's the solution mentally, practically? We sang a lot of songs about fixing our eyes, fixing our gaze. Where does your gaze go to? And I mean, answer that honestly, just between you and the Lord. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, gives us the answer to that. To where our gaze must be fixed if we have any shot of not being anxious about the future and what the future holds. And in 9 through 20, I think, believes it gives us one of the clearest, most comprehensive and concise pictures of Jesus Christ in our whole Bible. And so we're going to wade through this today, and I, I wish I could probably go through, through it much slower than, 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 than we will this morning. But my prayer has been this, that this text, this section particularly, wakes us up gives us a true picture and vision of who Jesus Christ actually and truly is in our lives. The one who our eyes are called to be fixed on. May that, uh, that capture us and give us confidence this morning. Revelation, I, I believe in John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is meant to wake up our imagination. And I don't mean just to give us these crazy thoughts, but to give us these biblical thoughts from the word of God truly about who Jesus is. And so I love what one commentator says about Revelation is that in, in the face of fear, right, in anxiousness, God sets before us an absolute feast. And so this morning, I want to tell you, is a feast through the word of God on the picture and image of who Jesus is that John sees that's what we're feasting on this morning, the first vision in the book of Revelation given to John. And now let's remember what kind, from last week, what kind of literature Revelation is. It's apocalyptic literature, okay? A form of literature that we are not familiar with here in our age. So it's full of symbols. It's full of these, these, these images, right? Symbols that are not necessarily meant to, to be taken literally, but the apocalyptic literature is, in the word apocalypse is kind of been hijacked. And so here's what I want. When you hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, I simply want you to hear the word uncover, unveiled. 
that the curtain is pulled back on the way things really are. And so what this first vision is from John to us about Jesus is pulling back or uncovering who Jesus really is in his full glory, in his full splendor. And so that's the first, first vision. How beautiful is it that that's the first thing we see from John in a vision in the book of Revelation? That should tell us what the whole book is about, right? It's about Jesus and his splendor and his glory. So now let's, let's wade through this and feast on it this morning. Verses 9 through 11, those tell us um, John, what I'm calling John's situation. The author, the human author of Revelation, tell us John's situation. So let's find out what situation he's in. He says in verse 9, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so the first thing we hear about John is not necessarily all that spiritual. It's more of like a, a physical situation with John, isn't it? We know that John is sharing with these churches that he's writing these, this letter to that he is also in tribulation, right? He's part of the kingdom. He's a, he's a brother with them. And he's being patient in endurance. So he's talking to these people who are also suffering alongside him. And, and these three words, tribulation, kingdom, and patience, all go together. So if you read this in the original language, which is Greek, all of these words are actually tied together. And so when you think of tribulation, what John is essentially saying to them is like, listen, this life is, is hard. This life is difficult. We're facing persecution. We're facing struggle. You in your churches, in your different cities, right? Ephesus, Laodicea, Smyrna, we're all facing this persecution. I, John, am walking through the same tribulation. Yeah, they look different, but we're walking through this life, and this life is hard. And to that, most of us can now... We don't know exactly, we're not, we're not sharing in the same sufferings the church has suffered in, uh, or, or the one that John is, but we know the waves of this life crash against us, and we can feel how hard this life is because of sin, right? But John then goes, listen, we're also, though, part of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Where last week in those verses he said that we are citizens and priests in the kingdom of God. So yes, this life is hard, but we are part of a new kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of God. And let me tell you, life in the kingdom, it's really good. It's really good. So we have life in this world and life in the kingdom of God. And then because life is hard, because there is a, a, a life in the kingdom, he goes, we are going to patiently endure with patience. Because our hope is not rooted in this life. Our, 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 our hope is not rooted in the things that we feel or the things that we see. Our hope is rooted in Christ Jesus, who is king over his kingdom. So we patiently endure. We patiently wait for that kingdom to be fully realized. And so this is John's physical situation. John can say this because he's exiled on a prisoner island known as Patmos. Now, this island is in modern-day South Greece. It's a 24-square-mile island where prisoners were, 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 were exiled. And there's said to be a, a prison on this. John would not have been in the prison on Patmos. He was, he was most likely allowed to kind of roam around free, if you will, on this exiled island in, in Patmos. And, and, and make no mistake, verse 9 tells us why, why he's there on Patmos, doesn't it? Look at it in your Bibles. He says, I'm here on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's what got John, that's the reason John was put on Patmos. 
because he was preaching or proclaiming the word of God, right? Which he walked with Jesus, right? He was one of the, the disciples. And the testimony of Jesus. What was the testimony of Jesus? Notice it didn't say because of John's testimony, even though it was John's testimony was part of that. It was the testimony of Jesus. That Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who came from heaven, was the son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died an innocent death. Uh, you crucified him, right? We crucified him with our sin, and he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That's the testimony that ended him up on the island, exiled, okay? Make no mistake about it. And, and to be honest with you, this is where prophetic witness can get you. And, and I, when you hear me say the word prophetic, I want you to think back to verse 9, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, that's prophetic. That's speaking God's word. That's declaring God's word as the ultimate truth. And that ends John on an island. Now, some of you, some of us in our lives, we have experienced this as well. And we talk about this here at the parks, that the church or the people of God should be the people speaking the prophetic or be the prophetic witness to the watching world. What do I mean by that? I mean the people declaring and living out the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, in our current culture, it will not end us on an exiled island south of Greece, even because some of you are like, sign me up for that right now, right? <laughs> no, but it will look like maybe relational exile. It will look like some of your family members, right? I've said this many times here, is... is, is um, our friends in Vietnam, uh, it's been said, they, 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 they fear the raised fist, literal persecution of their bodies. What we fear here is not the raised fist, we fear the raised brow. The exile of family members looking at you strange, your neighbors going, why do you orient your schedule like that? Nancy Guthrie, um, Bible teacher, she says this, she says, King Jesus was so real and so precious to John that he would rather be exiled to a barren island prison than to not talk about Jesus. John essentially said, come what may to my physical body, I'm not going to shut my mouth about speaking who Jesus is. So that's John's physical situation where he finds it. But he also finds himself, as the text explains in verse 10, in a spiritual situation. Let's look at it. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does that mean? Um, on the Lord's day, this is most likely representing Sunday, the day in which the Lord uh, Jesus Christ resurrected. Okay, so he finds himself there uh, worshiping Jesus on Sunday, okay, to, to, to make this as clear as I can. However, it says that he was in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we've seen John trying to do is keep the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit ever before us. But, but this is different. This is a different moment than what Paul talks about maybe in his letters where he's talking about walking in the Spirit or walking by the Spirit. This is John in a very unique way, in a very unique moment, having um, the Spirit empower him and fill him in a very real, tangible, but unique moment. Something I believe that John probably has never experienced before. And in that moment when John was worshiping on the Lord's day, the spirit fell on John. And here's what happened to him. Verse 11. Well, back up. Verse 10. I heard behind me. Okay. So he's on the Lord's day in the spirit. He heard behind him a loud voice, one like a trumpet. Okay. Like 
He's praying, he's worshiping God, the spirit falls on him and he hears a trumpet. Now, if you know your Old Testament, by the way, Revelation is all pointing, uh, most of it is just pointing back to the Old Testament. These pictures, these analogies, the things that we see, the symbols, they all find their roots in the Old Testament. So even something like him hearing something like a trumpet should send off bells in the Old Testament. When a trumpet blew, that meant certain things. That was one that announced the king is here it also announced war is beginning. A trumpet was blown. It, it was blown to get people's attention. It was, it was blown uh, to, to, to call something. It was also blown, as I looked at it, to end war. So get this. So a trumpet blast could have all of these different meanings. It could mean the king is here. It could mean that war is beginning. It could mean the war is over and victory has come. It could mean get your attention. You say, Kyle, which one does it mean in Revelation? And that I say, yes. <laughs> the king is here. The war is continuing. The battle, the victory has been won. Pay attention. And so John hears what he, a trumpet. And, and if nothing more, John's like, I had better pay attention. And so then it says that he, he turns. And in verse 11, um, it says, notice this, like, Jesus now speaks, and in my Bible, these are red letters, if you have that type of Bible that, that puts them red. These are first, the first words of Jesus. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So John, in the spirit, worshiping God, he hears a trumpet, he turns, and what does Jesus do? He calls him, listen to me, he calls him into obedience, he calls him to do something. There is an action that follows from this experience with the Holy Spirit, hearing the trumpet. Jesus goes, listen, write what you see. Okay, let's pause there. Because you kind of just flow through these texts and you just keep reading. John is on an island He's exiled, persecuted for his faith, tribulation, suffering on this island. It's not a vacation. Couldn't you think John be like, Jesus, haven't I done enough? Right? Like, I, I preached your word. I, I, I gave your testimony. It got me put on an island. And now you're telling me to do one more thing? And of all things, write what I see? Don't you want me to write what I hear? No, he says, write what you see. But John doesn't, does he? He doesn't make an excuse. And I, I want to pause right here. That it's oftentimes in the place of exile or those places of wilderness in our lives that God speaks most clearly to his people. And this, this can be true in our lives as well. As we follow Jesus, he will draw us out to draw us in or to draw us closer to him. And if you're like me, oftentimes we fight and we kick and we scream against those moments of exile or wilderness or being drawn out. What if, just what if, hypothetically, we had the perspective that those might be the moments that the Lord is going to use and to form us so deeply and shape us so deeply that it will mark us for the rest of our lives. Listen, you don't have to manufacture wilderness. You don't have to manufacture exile. The Lord will draw you out. He will lead you out as you follow him faithfully. Right? Some of you, you're in the wilderness, you're in exile because of self-inflicted wounds. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking to those places where by the power of the Holy Spirit, he draws you out into the desert. He takes you out to that lonely place 
Could it be that it's in that place he wants to deeply form, deeply speak to you, deeply call out to you? Something that will mark you, something will shape you for the rest of your life. And it's in that place and space that we get this vision, verse 12. Then I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Pause right there. And this is where we begin to get into this imagery, this vision of Jesus. But it begins with seven lampstands. And I told you last week, the, 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 the number seven in Revelation is really important. And when you see the number seven, I want you to think about this idea of completeness or, or wholeness here. These seven lampstands, verse 20 in this text, tells us what they are, okay? We don't have to guess. They're the churches. They represent the churches, the seven churches specifically that, that John is writing to. This imagery is also should be conjuring up temple imagery from your Old Testament. I love that our men's and women's Bible studies are going to be going through the Old Testament this semester. Jump into those. This is going to be a beautiful, beautiful thing that this in the temple, the menorah, right, would have given the, the, the temple light. Now in Revelation, you have these seven lampstands. But, the, but to be honest, the, the, the emphasis within this text is not on the seven lampstands. It's what? What does John notice? The one who stands in the midst of them. The one who stands in the middle of these uh, lampstands, and that is Christ. He is the one who is tending these lampstands. He's the one who's filling them with oil. He's the one trimming their wicks, making sure that they are burning brightly for his glory. And all of John's gaze is fixed on the one who is in the midst of his churches. And then he begins to describe it. And again, all of these Old Testament allusions uh, from Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 10, Ezekiel, Exodus, all of these places. And I wish I could take you there um, to all these, but, but I'm not going to. Um, one commentator puts it like this, because John didn't have the words to describe the heavenly things he saw. Remember, when Jesus spoke to him, he said, write the things you see. Just try, give that, give, try to do that on your own time once, right? Write something you see. Go outside and, and just write. You see a tree? Write your description of a tree. It's very difficult. And so John had these images. And so this commentator goes to say, he says, he, John, drew upon the best things he could describe it using imagery his readers and those who would hear it um, read to them would be familiar with. So he's using Old Testament imagery because his audience is familiar with the Old Testament imagery. We're not as familiar as his original audience with this Old Testament imagery. And so while I would like to go through every Old Testament allusion in this, I won't, right? Over time, I'm going to hit a lot of them. But what I've noticed about the vision of Jesus and how it's described here is that nearly every one of the descriptions, right, the, the white hair or the fire in the eyes or the sword from his, his mouth are also used in each of the letters to the seven churches. So we're gonna go through them uh, again, but let's get a high level view of the picture and the vision of Jesus from John here in the book of Revelation. And, and, and hear me, um, John is not just trying to make us a better students of the Bible, even though I think that's really important as a disciple. John is trying to draw us in to a vision and a picture of Jesus that will stop us dead in our tracks. 
right? One that will fill us with awe, one that will fill us with hope, one that will fill us with, with wonder. And so let's, let's look at what that is. And now I want you to hear that in Revelation chapter 1, when we go through this description, this is not what Jesus looks like per se, Okay, so if you get your pen, pen out and you begin to sketch a picture of these things that we go through, and you go, I know what Jesus looks like. Here it is. That's not necessarily what John is doing. Remember, apocalyptic literature. What he's trying to do is saying, this is not what Jesus looks like per se. This is what Jesus is like. Jesus is like this. And how does he begin? Well, he says he's one like a son of man. That's from the book of Daniel, right? Describing actually God the Father, he's now saying he's, he's, he's like him, but he's the son of God, right? And John, he starts with what? He says, son like, like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, I found this really interesting that John starts in his vision with Jesus, in his description here, writing it out, with his clothing, Can I just, like, for me, is a, he sees himself in a long robe and a golden, a golden sash around the middle of his chest. Like, look at the rest of the list. To me, it's like the least spectacular, right? Like the fire in his eyes and the sword out of his mouth or the bronzed feet, you know, like, like man, I'd be starting with those. But what is John trying to do? You see, the clothing establishes Jesus's role. And I believe that it's the first thing that John observed when he saw this, the radiance of who Jesus is. He goes, wait a minute. He's clothed in, wait a minute. He's dressed like what? A priest and a king all in one. An example of this would be somebody who, who, who wears a uniform, right? Maybe it's a police officer. And they walk in a room, and you have to give a description of that person. I would guess that you would start not with that person's height or hair color or eye color. You'd probably go, well, that person who walked in the room was a police officer because they had the uniform on, right? That's what's happening here. The vision of Jesus shows up, and he's in this clothing that John recognizes, and he goes, he's a priest. He is the king. And so we understand his role now and what flows from that role can now be properly placed with the hair and with the eyes and with the vision that John has. And so we need to understand Jesus first and foremost as our high priest and our king priest, meaning he is the one who stands between God and his people. He's the one who mediates God to his people and the people back to God. Jesus is the high priest, but he's not just the high priest. He's also king. He's also Lord. He's also victor over everything and everyone. He stands there as that. That's the first thing that John wants us to realize. Then the next thing, he starts with the top of his head. Look at verse 14. He says, the, hair, the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow, right? Just pure white. Like what's going on there? Well, two things are going on there. John is illuminating Jesus's purity, his, his, his holiness, his, his absolute perfection and purity. And with the gray hair, he's illuminating Jesus's everlasting wisdom. Everlasting wisdom, right? Gray hair, you've heard that, is a crown of Wisdom, that's right. And so here Jesus in this picture of him gets this, 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 this idea, this, this heart that is captured by Jesus' purity. This is the same picture that, that Daniel saw. 
And God the Father, uh, and I believe it's Daniel uh, chapter uh, 2, or maybe this is in 7, when he talks about the ancient of days and what he looked like, same language. I love, though, uh, what John Piper talks about when he talks about the age of wisdom. So it would appear that in this image that Jesus is standing there as a white-haired, aged person. Fair? John Piper says this. He says, in American culture today, we respect the process of aging less and less. A person is admired if he can keep looking young, not if he has the dignity of age. Jesus before him has the perfect dignity of age, everlasting. The Bible saw it another way, Piper says. Proverbs 16, 31, a white head is a crown of glory, which we just talked about. So much so that in the law, God commanded, you will rise up before the white head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19. One of the reasons we don't want to grow old is that we associate age with fading of power that makes life work worth living. The capacity to see and to hear and to think clearly and move about and not have pain. But all of those things do not belong to aging as aging. They belong to aging in a futile and fallen world of sin. Once God does away with sin and the curse and establishes the new heavens and the new earth, aging will not have any of these negative connotations. Praise God, right? It will only be associated with growing wisdom and insight and maturity. All the strength will still be there. All the mental powers will still be there. All the sight and hearing and agility will still be there. Nothing that is great about youth will be left behind. There will only be added all the powers and beauties and depth of age. That's what's happening. And John gets this picture of Jesus. He is like the ancient of days with all the wisdom of eternity and all the maturity and steadiness of age, but he was not weak or weary or faltering in his step. Do you see what this is picturing? We've just started with his head. Let's let's just keep going. And staying on his head, he says in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So he observed Jesus in his purity Now he's observing Jesus via his eyes with fire, not just his purity, but his purification, that he makes things pure. He purifies his people. This speaks to Jesus' all-knowing power, his penetrating insight into all things, including his church, particularly, I would even say, his church, individually, and corporately, nothing, let me just tell you this, nothing escapes the gaze of our God. Nothing escapes the one who stands in the middle of the lampstands. And that is really good news. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. What is going on there? Good question. Back to Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember this story, and there's a statue in this dream. Go read it on your own time. But in this statue, it, it describes how it's, it's built and what it's built by. And in the statue, the, it, it has a gold head and a, a torso of silver and a belly and thighs of bronze. Note that. Legs of iron, but the feet in this image that Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar were a a mixture of iron and clay. 
And here's what we need to know about iron and clay. They don't mix well to build a foundation. And in the vision, there's this stone that comes, and, and Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar this, it comes and as soon as it just obliterates, right, this, this, this idol or this statue. And let me tell you that the statue was grand, it was beautiful, the bronze, the gold, all of these facets. However, what about the statue made it most vulnerable was its what? Its foundation. It's foundation, one that does not bond together, one that will not hold. And so here, the same kind of picture Jesus is giving to John of himself to go his feet, his foundation is what? Bronze. So get this. Bronze is a combination of iron and copper. Iron for its strength, but the problem with iron is it rusts. And so then copper added to it won't rust, but it's pliable. So you combine these two and you get bronze. The best quality of both of those things together is now preserved and proves and provides this foundation that, that John is seeing in Jesus to go, listen, the things of this world, they will be really uh, pleasant to the eyes. They will look like they can stand. They will be really enticing. They'll be really beautiful on the surface. But here's the deal with everything of this earth. It has a faulty foundation. And the only one who has a perfect foundation is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it, it takes it a step further than to just go, it's just bronze. But notice, it's also been tested by what? The furnace. By fire, it's been solidified and proven to be the foundation of all foundations, the cornerstone in other places of the Bible, as it said about Jesus. So know this, that the rule of Christ is set on the foundation of power that has been tested by fire. His life, his death, his resurrection. And so when, when John sees these bronze feet, He's seeing strength and power. He's seeing permanency. I think even in the church, we're so enticed to put our hope or our strength on these things that have on the surface these pretty appearances that are alluring. Maybe it's a new ingenuity of, uh, of, of, of some new program or some new ministry. Listen, our foundation as the church is and always will be the true foundation, the sure foundation, the powerful foundation, the everlasting foundation of Jesus Christ. Or let me tell you, there is no foundation at all. I'm convinced that even some of us in our lives, we're trying to mix iron and clay and we're trying to get all these combinations going, okay, that's gonna be the foundation. And Jesus goes, no, I'm the foundation. I'm the rock that you build your life on. Everything else is sand. Let's keep going. Verse 15, bronze, and then it gets, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. It, it, it doesn't say what he says here quite yet, but what his voice is like. Have you ever been around, I mean, incredible, like an incredible amount, whether it's a waterfall or something like Niagara Falls, like, again, those all pale in comparison to what he's talking about here. He's like, this is the roar of many waters. If you've ever been around something like this, you, you observe two things. One is this, the power, the sheer power of it, right? This past summer, I, I was really close to a pretty massive waterfall, and I thought, like, literally, if I walked under that thing, I would just, like, it would break every bone in my body, Right? 
But the second thing you notice when you're around the roar of rushing waters is that you can't hear anyone or anything else around you. So John's like, Jesus is speaking, his voice is going forth, and his voice is like the roar, like the, there's this power in it, and there's his voice. I can't hear anything else except his voice. When Jesus speaks, it's this awesome, commanding thing. Is that what you believe when you open the word of God? The spirit-inspired word of God that is literally God's word to us about himself? That it's awesome and commanding? and that silences everything else around us? Verse 16. We'll make this listen again. Like I said, these are going to be revisited in the seven churches. In, in verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. Now there's some speculation, but verse 20 tells us what these stars represent. It says the angels of the churches. That's clear, right? Good. I'm glad you thought so, right? The word angels here could uh, literally mean uh, angels or, or messengers to these seven churches. He's holding in his, I know this is my left hand, but uh, in Jesus' right hand. This could mean uh, the pastors, the ones who proclaim the word of God in those seven churches. Um, what I want you to pick up here is that the right hand of Jesus is a place of honor and authority. And so whatever those stars necessarily represent, it, it could be a cool, deeper study for us. But what I want you to see is that this is a, a, a place that Jesus has put his churches, right, in the heavenly realm, right? You have the lampstands that, that represent probably the, the earthly embodiment of these churches. Then you have the seven in his hand to go, listen, I hold it all in the palm of my hand. And listen, my churches are mine. The messengers are you're mine. The angels, the ones proclaiming the testimony of Jesus, the word of God, you're mine and I'm caring for you. I'm leading you. I love you. Like that's, It shows me so much care from, from Jesus. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Um, this shows us Jesus's word, right? We, we heard about his voice. Now we hear about his word. In a sword, biblically speaking, is the word of God. A sword represents divine judgment, power, that this sword that flows from Jesus' mouth, meaning the word of God flowing from his, his mouth, it cuts and it cures. That it hurts and it heals. It has this beautiful two-edgedness to it. And so many of you in this room, you have felt the crushing and the mercy of Jesus simultaneously. You ever felt that? You felt him knock you down and lift you up in one swoop, right? That is the power of his word. And you need to know that his word, it stands as the final judge and arbiter of all things. That's what this sword from his mouth represents. And then again, wrapping up this, this vision here, it says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His radiance. You see this in the Old Testament when Moses is, is before God and he comes down right after being with the Lord. What, what was his face like? It was shining. The Mount of Transfiguration, there's this, this shining, this glow, this, this radiance. 
You see, this is Jesus unveiled, uncovered, apocalypsis in all his glory, in all his splendor. And what John, the words John knows how to use to describe what he's seeing is that his face, his being was just radiating like the brightest sunshine you could ever see. And then John did the only fitting thing. Verse 17, the only fitting response when you experience and when you see, when you stand like this before something like this, someone like this, here it is in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There's the right response. When you see Jesus unveiled in all his majesty, in all his glory, all you can do is fall down dead. Again, if you know your Old Testament, you, you, you know the places like that. But then let's not miss the gospel in verse 17. So John is there laying at the feet of Jesus, falling down in his unworthiness and his unholiness, not being able to withstand the glory and the power that is before him. And Jesus does what? But it says, he laid his right hand on me. Jesus touches John before another word flows from Jesus' mouth out of the experience John has just had with him, Jesus touches him. And remember, John is somebody who walked with Jesus on this earth, right, as a man. Thankfully, John didn't just turn and look and go, oh yeah, there's Jesus. I walk with you, man, right? We were together, so good to see you again. You're a little brighter than last time. Got some gray hair, right? No, he's drawing us into a picture going, I, I walked with Jesus, but now I see Jesus in all his glory. The picture is becoming more complete for John, and so he throws himself down. But I have to be convinced that what John remembers is the caring compassion of Jesus in the Gospels when he walked with him, when he felt Jesus' right hand, that hand of authority, that hand of power, be rested on his shoulder. And he's like, I remember that touch to the woman who was stooped over in that church service that nobody else would touch because she made them unclean. And Jesus goes, come here, come here. And she did that walk, if you remember that in the gospels, all the way to the front. And the first thing the gospel writers tells us is Jesus did what to this unclean woman? He healed her. No, that's not the first thing Jesus did. He touched her. He touched her, something no one had probably done in years and years and years for fear of being unclean. Jesus makes her clean and whole in that moment by first touching her and standing her up. And here, John, in this way of laying down like a dead man, Jesus touches him. And I have to believe that in that moment, John goes, I think things are going to be okay. Because that touch should have killed him. And now look at the second words that flow out of Jesus' mouth. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death in Hades. And then he tells him again, write down what you see. Write down the things that are. Write down the things that will be so 
Jesus' words to John after giving this incredible image is this. Fear not. Are you serious? You're here with flaming eyes, a sword out of your mouth, bronze feet, a robe that announces you're the high priest and the king, and I'm supposed to not fear? Here, I'm convinced of this, that the Christian life is one where we understand correct fear, but we live not afraid. Think about that. That the Christian life is marked by one with correct and right fear of who God is. However, we hear the word of God to us that says, don't be afraid. How in the world can we live like that? Proverbs 9, think about that. What does it say? It says that the, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom, right living, as God would, would, would say it, is having a proper righteous, holy fear of who God is. It's a right understanding of who God is. However, the word that flows out of Jesus here to John and to us is this, don't be afraid. How? Here's how. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the living one. I'm the one who died. I'm the one who rose from the dead. I'm the one, Jesus says it like, I love this picture. He goes, listen, I've got the keys to death in Hades. Jesus goes, I'm the one in authority. And if I'm the one that looks at you and says, do not be afraid, listen, you don't have to be afraid. If you're in Christ. The reason he said this to John with so much power and so much confidence is that he knew he was looking at someone who loved him by faith. Someone who had received his grace and his mercy by faith. He goes, you don't have to fear. We're on the same side. I have brought you near. I am the shelter. I'm the one that protects you. So no matter what you go through, John, no matter what tribulation or what, what pot they want to boil you in next, right? I am going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. I am the victor. I'm the one that gives you hope forever. I've got the keys, John. And so what speaks to our anxiousness? What speaks to our anxious hearts? Listen, it is the word of God that looks at us and says, listen, yes, fear me, but don't be afraid. Fear me because I am the one who is, who is the authority. I'm the one who has the power over this life and the next. But listen, by grace, through faith, you can receive that life. You can receive what I am offering to you, that shelter, that hold, that, that covering that we all long for so that he, he can look at you and he can look at me and go, don't be afraid. No matter what you walk through, no matter what you go through, do not be afraid. How easy would it have been for the churches in John's world and in his context for Jesus to begin to look really small in Rome, in their context, to begin to look really, really big, like the victor. How easy would it have been in their context for victory to look like it belonged to anyone and everyone except the Christians? And so it's with this message that John is waking up his own heart and the church to who Jesus truly is. How easy sometimes is it for us to feel the power of this world unloading on us and for that to drive fear in our hearts. But listen, do we believe the word of Jesus do we believe the vision of Jesus here in Revelation, that Jesus is in our midst? He's in the middle of this church. 
just as much as he was for the seven churches of Revelation, the one who is, the one who has always been, who has the authority over it all, the one who has the keys, he is in control and we can trust him. You can trust him. And so here's how I want to end um, as we receive communion. With that question before us, hey, I've just been praying for, for our heart and my heart that this image and picture of Jesus would capture us with a deep-seated awe, like a beauty and a confidence that can only come from the word of God. But I've also been praying for those of you who wrestle with trusting Jesus fully and wholly. And I'm talking to, to some of you as Christians you Christians who are wrestling with full surrender to Jesus. And this has been a theme for the last probably month, six weeks for me. Do I really trust the Jesus in Revelation 1, 9 through 20? Have I really sur surrendered my whole life to him? Or have I modified him and made an American version of him that I am just happy and content surrendering to that one? Or is it the one who has come in all power and all authority who has a penetrating gaze, who has all wisdom, who is all purity, who is the foundation of all foundations. That's the one I'm trusting. Listen, that's the one I want to stake my life on. Not the character I've made up in my preference. And so I pray for us as a church that we would get a true picture of Jesus this morning, a true vision of who he is, that that vision would calm our angst about the future, about the present, it would silence the voice in some of you of the past as well. Let me pray for us. Hosts, get ready. Father, I pray that you would use these moments by the power of your Holy Spirit to shape us and mold us and make us. Lord, there, there are so many words and images in this text, it's, it's actually overwhelming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would press exactly what needs to be pressed into our hearts and into our minds. And Lord, you would not just give us more knowledge to accumulate it, but you would give us this knowledge of your word so that our lives might be changed for your glory. And just as you told John to write what we see, may the church, may the Parks Church live out what we hear through your word this week. May we live out what we hear and what we see in Jesus in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our schools for your glory. Give us faith to do that this morning. Holy Spirit, lead this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Host, lead us in communion.